Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Actually, I'll change things around a bit, and that was Technodrome. 
Alex, Chris, Danny and Julio. Um, welcome to ACME and welcome to Studio One. I'm not going to say too much, but I am going to introduce you to tonight's proceedings. Uh, welcome to Replay. And uh, I'm going to quickly introduce our host and MC for this evening. And I had to write it down. <laughs> Um, so he's a freelance writer and independent game developer, 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 who has worked in the games industry since 1998 as a programmer, designer, writer and teacher for companies as diverse as Atari, Infinite Interactive, AIE, 2K Marin, Chocolate Liberation Front, the ABC and the Project Factory. Uh, he's an active member of the development and education community and... But last but not least, not also the director of Free Play Independent Games Festival. Um, so please welcome <laughs> Paul Callahan, and he's going to take over. I can't see very many of you. Um, thank you, Lizetta. These lights are, are quite bright. Uh, welcome to the first of what will be four uh, replay events. These are. Kind of the, the, the idea of these is we want to present a kind of a live in the studio, very intimate, very irreverent look at various aspects of video game uh, and video games culture. Uh, we will be doing them on the third Tuesday of every month throughout Game Masters. The next one is in a month, basically. I can't remember the exact date, uh, but we'll be looking at characters uh, in video games and, and the aspects uh, and the way that being other people helps us feel. Um, this month, though, we're looking at adaptations in video games. Um, because video games, especially in Australia, have a long history of coming from or going to other mediums uh, or other source material. Um, and it's actually, it's not really a new phenomenon either. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, and one of the earliest adaptations, uh, which has also gave us a title for our session, Thorn Sings About Gold, um, was The Hobbit, which was actually made here in Melbourne in 1982. Um, and it looked like this. Yeah! <laughs> Gandalf has a map. There's Thorin. Go, Thorin. What are you going to do, Thorin? <laughs> Screw you, Gandalf. <laughs> Yay! He sang about gold. Go, Thorin. Um, what's sort of interesting about this is that uh, the, we, because of a deal with the publishers, uh, The Hobbit came with a copy of the book. Um, so if you got bored of, of constantly being killed by trolls um, or getting lost in the maze that was just beyond the, the hill, you could, you could go and read the book. Um, it, was also, it was also one of the first examples of emergent gameplay because they built this whole system where all of the characters could sort of go off. Um, and do what they want. Uh, and that could also lead to situations where you could kill an essential character and spend hours and hours and not complete the game. Um, thanks. Thanks, The Hobbit. Um, so that, 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 that was one of the very first adaptations. Um, and for people who don't know what that was, that was a text adventure. That used to be all we had. <laughs> Long time ago. You had to use your imagination while you waited five minutes for the door to fill in with green. Um, to talk us through uh, the history of, of games and films and books and cartoons and, and how they jump across the ga gap between mediums, we have um, 
not only our expert panel uh, of critics, developers, and writers, but also a band, the house band, um, Technodrum, um, for a first replay event. And, and they will be obviously showing us how music jumps around, um, and I will probably grab my 3DS and play Star Fox while they were playing, because it's beautiful, it's so good, it's lovely. Um, so our three, our three speakers tonight, we have Josh Nelson, uh, Craig Jurabure, and Sarah Hagdusti. Um, all of them are gonna chat with individually about topics they're interested in, and then we're gonna have like a kind of a group discussion and Q&A with all of you. So if you have questions, you can hold off to the end and we will answer them as best we can and in, in as uncontroversial a way as possible. <laughs> I'll say that so that I don't get sued. Um, so our, our, um, we might bring Josh up and show our first couple of clips as well. Hello? Somebody out there? E.T.? Video game? E.T. is the Atari video game cartridge you have to buy separately to play on the Atari video computer system. Your parents hook it up to the TV. It's the video game that lets you help E.T. get home. Bye, E.T. This is the Atari video computer system. E.T. and other video game cartridges are each sold separately. You, you can't, I'm going to introduce you and you're going to have to follow it. That's how we're going to do it here. Um, so Josh is a freelance writer, academic, broadcaster and filmmaker. He has worked as a lecturer within the fields of cinema and cultural studies at the University of Melbourne and Victoria University and regularly presents in secondary schools on a number of film and media related topics. Josh also co-hosts the Triple R 102.7 FM film criticism podcast, Plato's Cave, and is a weekly guest on The Drive Show with Raphael Epstein on ABC 77 Melbourne. Please make a feel welcome. Thank you. So we obviously saw <laughs> like some, some old film video game adaptations, but how, how do you think video game adaptation exists in contemporary kind of media landscape? Well, I think probably a good place to start is, the, is where adaptation or, or what the kind of cultural significance of adaptation is in a, in a contemporary context. I mean, you sort of mentioned at the start that obviously adaptation is not new and you know, it's been going on for at least in that context 30, 40 years. But where I think it's changed now is this, this idea of um, adaptation no longer being about that, that sacred text that finds its home in, in some other form or some other medium. And I think I mean, it, it still exists to certain degrees in certain art forms and particularly sort of art, the idea of the original, the authentic mm. still exists. But now when everything seems to be, this is going to sound like Fight Club, a copy of a copy of a copy of, of, of something else, this, this idea of that original, that sacred text, is, is, doesn't have the same sort of cultural significance or meaning. Um, you know, the, this, this reboot culture, the sequel, prequel culture, let's just kind of, you know, hit, hit start and, and we'll sort of start again. Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man's sort of a perfect example of where does the authentic text lie when, you know, you can just kind of hit reboot and we'll just sort of start everything over again. So I'm fascinated with this, this idea of, of adaptation in this context because of the way in which it seems to kind of destabilise or that idea of, of the authentic, that it's no longer about... Does it live up to 
the original because if the original doesn't have the same meaning, then it's you know then then the kind of the, the games change. It's a bad pun, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Video video games culture has a long history of making game changes and play on and puns. Um, so d I mean, do you think that that's a particularly contemporary view than that kind of reboot culture? Because it sort of does feel like since in the past ten years that that's really taken hold. Do you think? Do you think that, that a lot of maybe the, the kind of the adaptation video games thing is part of that same mindset, which is, you know, story as product that we can continually repackage? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think it definitely has a um, a capitalist interest. You know, God bless your capitalism. Yeah, um, particularly, I mean, when, you, when you're talking about, I mean, my my background cinema, so that's kind of that's normally my starting point for for adaptation, whether it's going from uh, you know literature or, or to video games or or vice versa. You know, now with, with so much money invested in both the game industry and cinema, particularly the, the big blockbuster studios, you know, you don't just have... The film doesn't come out in isolation. The film comes out along with a, a range of merchandise and figurines and the video game and, you know... So it's, it's you know, it's that sort of Jack Donaghy, 30 Rock idea of, you know, multitasking, multi-level sort of um, promotion. So storytelling doesn't exist in just that, that singular jumping between mediums now. Um, so, so that in, in itself kind of suggests that there is no original text. I mean, I have a friend who was working on the, um, the Amazing Spider-Man um, video game, the, the movie time, um, is based in Canada now. So for the last sort of 12 months, I've been getting sort of screenshots of his work coming through before the film. So for me, that, you know, I, I was more familiar with the video game before the film had even hit the cinemas. And I think that, in a sense, reflects that kind of contemporary status of, of adaptation to a, to a degree. But that's still that's still video game as product, right? Like it's not necessarily the, the only reason that that exists is so that somebody somewhere can make money. Like no no one's gone. You know what? You know what will make the world a better place is, is a <laughs> Spider-Man game or an ET game. Um, it's it's still this sort of weird. The we, the, the kind of the impetus for these things to, to exist is still very commercial. Absolutely, I think. Um, so like, what about things like? Like kind of transmedia, we sort of touched, touched on that a little bit. This yeah. idea about kind of interactivity and connecting to cinema. Like, what what are your perspectives on that? Well, I, I guess this is about the nature of storytelling's change. I mean, one of my bugbears, um, particularly as a, as a film critic, um, is this this question that keeps coming up whenever there's a film that's been adapted from a novel, and it's always this question: Oh, the film is never as good as the book. And this, this is one of these fundamental problems I have with the way in which adaptation is discussed: is that this, this idea never seems to want to engage with the fact that they're completely different mediums. That you know, how can one be necessarily better or worse when we're talking about two fundamentally different art forms? Um, and I, I think what's interesting now is that it's slowly, I think, I mean, it's still there, but it's moving away from this argument to to different forms of storytelling, but maintaining the same sort of universe. So. Mm. The Matrix exists in, in the realm of the, the films, but it also exists in, in comics and then anime and you know, the, the, the video games, obviously. So it's not about one being better or worse than the other, but it being this sort of splintering of storytelling, this, this fragmentation where stories don't just happen in one place in one time now. They, they're, they're spread across. They happen in, in parallel. And I think that's, that's really interesting. I think that's a, a much more productive way to look at, at storytelling in a contemporary context is not in this... Is it better or worse? Does it live up to the original or the authentic? But how, how do different mediums tackle the one kind of storytelling or the one sort of you know, universe or verse? Do you think audiences care about that? Do you think audiences care about 
hey, I can, I can go and watch this film and I can, while I'm in the film, I can tweet one of the characters and they'll tweet back at me. And I'll come home and I'll go on their Facebook page and they'll like me. So do you think, I mean, that to me always feels like, I, I, you know, I want a media experience and I want to sit in the cinema for, for three hours and I don't want to, I don't necessarily need to engage with those characters with that world. Well, I think part of the appeal, I mean, there is, you mentioned before the, the notion of, of some of these video game tie-ins being just mm. about product. I think they are tapping into something, in, in, in tapping into a desire that um, exists in cinema. I'm not, I don't want to get too psychoanalytic, but that do. when we get when we when we watch cinema, it's about projection and identification. That you know you're you're vicariously experiencing something through whether it's the protagonist, normally the protagonist in Hollywood Hollywood cinema, and that there's there's some sort of bond, some sort of you know phantasmatic bond between you know between the audience and what, what's on screen. I think. In a certain way, there's a similarity with video games, mm-hmm. but it's taking it that next step. It's, it's adding in the um, the element of interactivity that, you know, we can kind of literally participate in these worlds. And I think if, you know the, the the sort of the, the fandom that's inspired by superhero narratives or you know, say the Matrix, is what really prompts people, as opposed to just being a fan of the franchise, that prompts them to buy the games. They can they can live out these kind of fantasies that they sort of experience on a on a different level in the cinema. Do you, think, do you think that the, like, stepping away from the storytelling aspects of that, though, do you think that there's kind of struggles with the mechanistic elements of it? You know, if you watch a film, like, a character can do, like, 30 different things to try and overcome their problem. In a game, it's pretty much press X to do an action. And that's the action that you continually do over and over again. Which means there are obviously some characters that are, we were talking about Batman earlier, you know, press X to punch or yeah. go limp, um, as we were discussing. <laughs> that, that's an in-joke, sorry. I won't do that again. Um, but do you think there are problems with that and issues with that? Well, I think that's when this discretion between qualities of, of video games comes into play. And, 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 you know, fans are kind of vicious. They'll, t- if they'll tell game designers <laughs> and they'll tell, you know, the reviews if, if that, that the experience of the game doesn't live up to that experience that they're going, that they're desiring, this, mm. not, not this sort of um, almost wish fulfilment of, of this sort of you know, this ego substitute. Um, so, you know, I think that, yeah, again, that comes back to quality. And this is something else that, you know, is, is often overlooked in traditional arguments about adaptation, where you have a kind of a clear hierarchy between high culture and low culture. And in the scheme of things... And then video the, games right down the book, like, even off that scale. Well, this is the thing. And this, this disdain that so much of, of you know, I'm generalising here, Western culture has for popular culture. Um, this idea of if it's popular, it can't, it can't be quality. And this is... You know, I'm talking about my... All my bugbears are coming out tonight... When, when film critics, and I won't name them, but I really love to, um, when they use, and I read it all the time, when they complain about films and they use this sentence, it was just like a video game. And they're not, well, they're not, they're not saying that it's like a bad video game. They're not the discretionary critic of, of, of video game culture. They're not saying it's like E.T. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> How good was that spaceship going up? Um, they're, they're saying that video games are bad and this film is equivalent to a bad video game. And it's playing on those cultural hierarchies, those, those implicit biases about, you know, about art forms and, and cinema being somehow implicitly, you know, more, you know, implicitly superior to the, the, the mass popular popularity of, of video games. And I, I find that frustrating because, because they don't say it's like a bad video game. You know, there are, there are, I have played games, you know, I'm sure most people in this room will attest, that are far more enjoyable or far more interesting and engaging than a lot of what, what gets drolled out of the multiplexes, you know, six, six or seven days a week. So that's, you know, that's something I kind of struggle to reconcile. What if they're right, though? <laughs> well, uh, it's, I think it'd be, 
ill-informed to say that video game culture hasn't informed cinema. I think that would be really naive. You just and have to watch Brave, I think. Well, you'd have to watch Brave. Stuff. King Kong, for me, was a, a real standout in terms of... And Peter Jackson, I think, should have known better. But it, that film reeked of a studio saying, we need X number of sequences yep. that we can transplant to the game. Because we've already got the game ready. So, you know, you need a 15-minute sequence where, where the characters are being chased by various dinosaurs and creatures down this tunnel. And it has to go for this length of time and it has to involve these creatures. Forget about the fact that it doesn't advance the plot or has no real relationship to the character conflicts, etc., etc. So I think that's, that's where you start to get this, this bleeding between the, the different mediums. Um, but the, going back the other way is, is also problematic when you have video games that are adapted, and I will talk about this more later, but to cinema and the kind of problems of... of when you have two inherently sort of different mediums, what are the kind of the, the pitfalls? Um, and one of the ones I, I, I kind of I sort of did want to touch on, which gets back to this idea of projection and identification, is so much bad, you know, video game to cinema adaptation forgets about character. The characterization seems to get you know, thrown out the window because, well, we don't get any characterization in the video game. We just start shooting zombies from the from the first cutscene. Mm. When you're playing a video, go- video game, you're bringing your own character, your own history, your own personality and subjectivity to a game, regardless of whatever frame that's put in, whether it's a, whether it's a cop, whether it's an adventure seeker, whether it's, whether it's Mario you know, on a platform game. You're bringing your own sort of personality to the way in which you play that game. In cinema, you expect more from the script. You expect more from the director to kind of pad out that gap between you and what you're seeing on screen. And I think that's something that's really frequently overlooked in that in that sort of adaptation progress. It's also, I mean, there's also this sort of, uh, not necessarily literal adaptation, but also the kind of the adaptation of the grammar. So you see things like, um, you know, a game like Heavy Rain um, or a game like Ellie Noir, which take, take all of the kind of superficial aspects of, of, these, um, uh, of these kind of, you know, film tropes and then just slap them straight into kind of the minimal interactive layer that they can without ne- necessarily considering... Um, what, what it is about those films that makes them work, you know? And especially, I mean, for me, you know, as a writer, seeing, like, people going, this game, this game is like a David Fincher film, and yeah. you go, have you actually ever seen a David Fincher film? Exactly. <laughs> L.A. Noire is, is very different to yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of, the one, one of the games that gets it right um, is House of the Dead Overkill. It, it is that sort of perfect blend of, of 70s, whether you like the game or not, I think it does it well, the 70s exploitation buddy cop genre, um, and the dialogue, the sense of humour in that game, it, it has a, a I mean, it's, you know, it, it's filmic even down to the, the missing splices of celluloid, that sort oh, really? of, that sort of um, grindhouse, I mean, tapping into that grindhouse Tarantino-esque style. But that was one that, that obviously knew its genre and adapted the previous kind of history of the, the House of the Dead games in a way that sort of took it to a different level. And I think it was that, almost that perfect blend of cinema and, and video game experience. And, and going back to the, the idea of the, um, you know, the, the, the film, or, you know, this bad film is like a video game. Like, they, they always forget, like, th- these tropes didn't appear in video games. Um, you know, if you go back and watch a film like Die Hard, you're just like, man, this is like, he's indestructible, he's got to go on these crazy quests, and he's got to do all this stuff. Like, all of these tropes, like, emerged from film, and then even going further back, they're all embedded in mythology. Well, th- I mean, Die Hard is a really good example, actually, because of the the set pieces. That's why mm. I think it works as, a, as an action film because the set pieces are really tightly honed but they still have a sense of internal logic and, and drama and kind of they refer back to character and there's a, there's a, a tension there. 
with a diehard game, I'm almost certain there aren't there were diehard um, game adaptations. But and there was a PlayStation Two one which had all three films, and one was like an overhead thing, and then one was a driving game, and then one was like a light gun game. Um, yeah, that's my memory of it. And they were all super hard. That, so you only ever got to level one, and you're like, I'm going to play the other one. Maybe it's better. It wasn't better. But the, what, what makes Die Hard work as a, as a film is the, the first sort of 30, 40 minutes that sets up the character and sets up the conflict, which you can't really do in it. You can't have 30 minutes of cutscenes at the start of the game before you hit the first kind of you know, level. Or you, well, you could. You, you, could, you could. <laughs> and it would just be Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Take that, Kojima. So, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's finding that balance. I think, I think also, yeah, it's, it's also that thing. It's kind of, if you look at it for the hero's journey lens, like you can't really have ordinary world and refusal of the call. Because it's like, I don't, I don't want to go on this mission that you've wanted to do. It's like 20 minutes. You just go, no, press, press X to say no, basically. Say, no, all right, I'll go and shoot some zombies. Right, and I think that, that that's, always, um, that's always a challenge, is trying to make those old models fit into a new one, which is sort of interactivity. So, I mean, do you think it's this kind of interactive, do you think it's a, a thing that's coming from cinema or do you think it's a thing that's coming up from games? And you think we're sort of meeting in the middle? Either, either is it like the, the reason that these adaptations exist or like is a transmedia layer? Like where do you think the, the pressure comes from? I think, I think part of it is, is broader than, than both of those. I think both cinema and games are part of a broader cultural movement where I think it's about stimulus too, this, this interactivity and, you know, this... I've got a, a younger sister who will be, and this is going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but she'll be on her MSN Messenger and she'll be texting and she'll be watching something on the TV. And you know, it's this idea of, of, of this sort of split personality almost, yeah. this, this constant sense of, of feeding stimulus and, and that having that sense of interactivity. I, I mean, games are obviously a kind of a, a really overt mm. um, example of that. And I think cinemas realise that they need to sort of tap into this kind of interactivity because that seems to be what the the market is kind of craving. So you have you know, viral campaigns or you'll have you know, pseudo games on, on DVDs that you know, it's another marketing tool to people to buy the game, but also it's, again, trying to kind of tap into that. So yeah, I think cinema's, you know, given where it's headed in, in terms of the game market, in terms of money that's being earned, it's, it realised that it kind of, it's a do-or-die sort of situation almost. There is, that, there is that constant thing where people go, hey, the games industry makes more, makes more than Hollywood because it's such an easy thing to, to measure. It's just like, oh, they make more money, therefore they are good. It's like, well, like, actually, A, A, do we make more money? You know, like if we factor all of that stuff in. I mean, also, is, is that a good thing? Do ne never to... fall into the trap of equating money earned with quality, though. Otherwise, if, if we did, Michael Bay films wouldn't oh, have made no. anything. My, I, is I'm that coming out again? I've been living a lie. This whole time, I mean, I mean that comes back to the kind of the capitalism part of it. And again, we love capitalism, um, <laughs> but it's it's the same sort of argument where it's like, you know, games ha are a very sort of capitalistic medium. You know, and in a lot of ways, you need to spend a lot of money to play games. You need to spend a lot of money to make them. And and we sort of became an industry much faster than than probably film became an industry as well. I think, and we're still we're still struggling with that. And it's, so I think, and also we have the you know the cultural cringe aspect of it. Um, so, much, so much of gameplay is, is, you know, revolves around the individual. And the individual is really the symbol of capitalism, that you can, you can do it, you can be, you know, just be yourself. That self-realisation is, is one of those great mythologies that keeps capitalism kind of you know, expanding and you know, on, ongoing. So um, there's very, it's kind of hard to play an ensemble game with one person. You know, you'd have to have multiple controls and have to be very dexterous. So yeah. I guess maybe online play is some... I'm sure someone's written a thesis on online play as some, you know... 
rejection of the, the singularity of the individual in capitalism, but you know, it's, it still promotes that, that the, the self, the one over the kind of the many. And I mean, so, I mean, so does some kind of contemporary Western cinema promotes that idea of like, like self-actualization. And obviously all of the, like games are very good at saying, hey, you, you're, <laughs> you're important, only you can save the world. And it is this kind of, you do, it's easy to worry about the types of values that video games are, are sort of creating and instilling. And how much of those values are, we're, are part of the medium or versus how much of those values we just sort of inherited from our most recent cultural form, which is cinema, obviously. Yeah, I guess it comes back to the art and culture and is it, is, it, is it a mirror? Is it a, I mean, I think it's far more like a kind of a, a cycle that one informs the other and it's this sort of ongoing repetition. And, and this is why, you know, artistic cycles don't just have their one cycle and then disappear, but they, you know, they return. It's the same with anything, whether it's fashion, whether it's cinema, whether it's kind of video games. That's why we keep seeing Spider-Man <laughs> getting, getting rebooted over and over again. That was impressive. I love the CGI. It was, it was, it was good. I, I, mean, I, I mean, that was from the new film, right? Like, yeah, I, I haven't seen so. it yet, but it looked, it looked pretty good. Garfield cool. was great. That mask was great. <laughs> Um, we might throw the Technodrome for another song yeah. and we'll be back with our other speaker after this. Thanks, Josh. No worries. Cheers.
That's what, that's what these are for. Yeah, thanks. I, I think, I don't know. I kind of I, I kind of feel like I'm Craig Ferguson or something. I need like a robot sidekick <laughs> over here who can, who can just keep saying profanity. Mm. That'd be pretty funny. Mm. Crikey, mm. crikey dingo, <laughs> um, to cover it up. Um, we might show uh, a quick clip of one of the games that Craig has made mm. as an adaptation before we introduce him properly. Gil Hammerstein speaking. Yes, sir. I'm aware how important the anniversary special of Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy is, and I'm completely convinced. Yes, sir. Sure, sure, sure. We'll put all the contestants through their paces, see how they do in the three scenes, and the one that performs the best will get the part. I want to start, William. No less. William, baby. So, who's that? So let's applaud. Let's applaud. Oh, <laughs> So the trivia, the trivia for that scene was that uh, Nolan North, who did uh, Uncharted, Drake, was actually the, that, that shark. Before he became famous. <laughs> that's kind of cool. cool. So you got to write lines for, for Nolan. For Nolan North. Wow. Not for the good games up the top. <laughs> the SpongeBob. Oh. oh. Um, <laughs> and now I am sad. Our second guest is, is Craig Jurebure. And Craig has worked uh, as a video game designer in Australia for the last 18 years. Good mm. work. Mm. Um, during that time, he's worked on a whole stack of licensed titles, including Looney Tunes, Men in Black, SpongeBob, Avatar, and Transformers. He now runs his own company, Grapple Gun Games, and he claims he never wants to work on another licensed title again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. That, that, that is his words. I didn't want to do air quotes. That's all right. You can air quotes. Like. You sure? I'm going to yeah. do air quotes. We can do this whole talking quotes. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, the. So you've made licensed games, you've made SpongeBob, you've written for Nolan North, mm. um, which is exciting. Um, how does it start? Like, where does, it, where does the little impetus camp come from to, to kind of make these games? Well, it, it always comes from someone telling you to do it. So <laughs> we never actually sort of, or for us anyway, we never actually went out hunting to say we, we really want to work on this particular license. Actually, no, I think there have been times where they've never been successful. We won't talk about those ones. <laughs> oh, now I'm sad again. Um, don't so be sad, you're with friends. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> I should lie down on the couch. It's like sick therapy. And another thing. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about my mother. So, um, yeah, it depends on, on what the licence is. So <clears throat> sometimes it's been movies, sometimes it's been Spongebob cartoon type things, and <clears throat> depending on how much history they've had, like Spongebob was cool because it had, by the time we got to it, it had like seven or eight years or something of, of cartoons that we could actually use as a reference. Um, so we just got to research them. So literally for the first two days of my job at THQ, I just watched games on a watched uh, cartoons on the couch, which is pretty cool. No one knew who I was. I was just the dude who <laughs> they flew up from Melbourne to, to play. Uh, play they were paying you for that, right? They, they were, they were just me like, for hey, that. Do you want to come and watch cartoons? It was, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, the other one is movies, and so things like we did a True Lies game years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So we actually got to see a script um, before it was even shot which is, uh, has good and bad points. We can get to those at some point. But, uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard. Um, so, yeah, it always starts with research. So you just have to research the, the producers out of it and just learn. So I usually just sit there watching, like, watching cartoons, laughing, because SpongeBob turns out to be a really good cartoon, which I didn't know before I started. Um, and just taking notes on, like, all the characters, what the characters do, how the characters interact, and sort of main scenes and sort of sets that uh, the player might like to see. So if you think, OK, there's a a restaurant that might be kind of cool, so we'll see if we might be able to set something in there. It keeps coming up a lot, so we'll, we'll set something in that. We research cool. by watching cartoons. I watched Looney Tunes cartoons at home for three days in comfortable pants. <laughs> Good times. And so at that point, like, how, 
like at, at that point, is it totally open? Like, can you are you pretty much in a space where it's like do a SpongeBob game and you go, I'm going to watch lots of cartoons and then pull it all together mm. in some amazing creative way? Well, it sort of it depends on how much the brief has already been written. So with SpongeBob, it was literally you could do anything, but they kind of wanted to ste uh, steer away from platform games because they'd all been platform games. And so we got to be a little bit open, but I was still told by someone else that uh, we want to try and make it a party game, and so we made it a party game. But, Which um, is not a game where you go to a party. Not a game, no. <laughs> <laughs> we made one girl cry. One, one of the testers who came in from school actually cried playing it, and I thought, she's never going to have a... She, she prefers books, she said, <laughs> and then cried, and I thought, she's never going to have a party. She's ne that was cruel. Oh, oh, and now she is sad. And she's here tonight. And she's here tonight. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that, that was fairly open. With things like um, back in the Super Nintendo days with like uh, True Lies, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, that was pretty much a, like, you know, we want it to be a particular type of game. Although with that one, actually, we could have, I mean, you could have gone side-on platform, you could have gone whatever. We went the sort of Chaos Engine style, top-down, back in the day, Chaos back, Engine. Back in the, oh, good uh, times, good times. We don't have a trailer for that. That's really we cool don't, because, because I, I, I cool couldn't game. see the future. Yeah, but um, <laughs> Chaos Engine uh, style, style top-down thing. So you've got a little bit of freedom, as long as it sort of follows roughly the sort of plot points they want to do. So, I mean, so SpongeBob, they, were like, they, they basically said it must be a party game. So you were watching all these episodes going, how can I make this a party? How can well, I make this a game? Yeah. Well, so the, the good thing about uh, party games is they're individual little scenes and so they only lasted for like three or four minutes each and so we could actually say what's a good setting and what sort of interesting things happen. So like in, um, in Spongebob there's a bit where these fishing hooks, because it all takes place under the water, so fishing hooks will come down they kind of ride them up and so we thought okay there's a bit of a game there so we filled with that. Others we just had to do weird things. Like Which was cool with, the, uh, with Spongebob because you could just do weird things. So, like, how, how much, how much, <laughs> how much leeway did you have to pitch stuff then? Like, did you, did you just go, like, let's do this weird, let's do weird thing A, and they would go, that sounds good. Let's do weird thing B. No, that sounds not so good. Um, usually different, uh, <laughs> different sort of points of, of different gates, really. So, like, internally, it's like, hey, these ideas are all kind of cool. You'd always try and pitch usually about, you know, sixty percent, hundred percent more than you needed to, so that you could sort of whittle them down mm -hmm. into something cool. Um, and then, yeah, then it'd have to go to... It's always these massive chains of, of command. So it would say, like, internally, we'd, we'd sort of, you know, work out, OK, th these are cool things that we like. You'd go to the licence, sort of the dude looking after the licence at the publisher, who's still not the person who looks after the cartoon, and they would sort of go, well, you know, this is not going to work because we know this, or this, we don't think this will work, or whatever. And then sometimes it goes to the person who created the cartoon in the first place, or Nickelodeon in this case, or whatever. And it has to pass each step... And sadly, those things take about like four weeks every time. And you think, we're running out of time on this game. And then by the time it gets back, you think, I've made half of this game. And they've gone, no, we can't do that. So that's hard. We can talk about that later if you like. <laughs> we can. Um, what about for something like, you know, like Avatar or Men in Black and Transformers? Like, how, how different is that? Because obviously they've got this story. So there must, is there a limited amount that you're able to pitch? Things like Avatar was... Uh, this is Avatar, the TV cartoon from Nickelodeon, not the, the Blue People game. <laughs> I didn't work on that one. So um, that they needed to follow storylines of... So, like, you know, Avatar, the first game, was season one. The second game was season two. Um, so we had to actually sort of follow storylines. And, and the scary part about that was that the story wasn't written by the time we got... Um, it hadn't been written just yet. And so we're saying, but what happens at the end? There's obviously this climax that we have to make the same climax in the game. They're like, we don't know what it's going to be yet. But you've got to keep working really hard because we need <laughs> the game really soon. Like, ah. 
and then you're and then you're writing dialogue for characters who have to record it and it has to be lip synced and so it takes months and months and months, and if you get it wrong, it, it all goes to to hell. So uh, so yeah, so for that one, that was tricky. So games that are sort of story based, you have to sort of follow some pretty strict guidelines and then try and work out what gameplay can be interesting in that, mm. while still coming up with the same outcome that everyone knows is going to happen. So uh, that becomes hard. So I mean, are, are there certain types of like license that lend themselves to games like better? Like Avatar sounds like it, may, it was a bit tricky. Where something like Transformers, right? Pretty much the pitch is you're a giant robot who punches and shoots. And you're punching. You still have to sort of follow storylines, but yeah, you can sort of pretty much guarantee that there's a lot of combat and stuff. Um, things that are tricky though between the, between the movies and the games is that you've got a limited amount of things that can appear on a screen before the frame rate starts to really drop and it starts to become really horrible. So if you can imagine these really, really detailed robots, um, you could have so many, and if it was a two-player game, you'd have two incredibly mm. detailed robots that would take up all the computer processor power, and then you could have like two enemies, and then it would all fall down, and so you had to have like really small enemies, or <laughs> enemies in the distance, and no one's ever going to need a game with more than two enemies. <laughs> more than two enemies. That's Surely nice. that's what it's all about. It's so uh, that becomes hard. And things like yes, SpongeBob was just uh, just crazy. So we had so much scope to do anything we wanted, whereas Avatar is a serious, serious game with real characters and drama. Dun, dun, dun. Bah, bah, bah. So we had to actually do dramatic, like have feelings and stuff feelings. in your game. But it, it felt like it was sort of set up as with games in mind. Like we talked about, uh, you talked about that before with Josh. But um, they sort of set up with games in mind. So it really felt like, you know, you've got the this person from the fire kingdom, this goes for the the water kingdom, and they've got different sort of powers and they can do different things. Mm. So the first Avatar game, which I didn't do, was a RPG style, and it really fit well with that. I think it confused the kids, but it sort of worked well for the gamers. Sometimes kids need to be confused. They do. They confuse to, a lot. To learn. Uh, We're teaching them that life is confusing. And for ridicule. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got them all here today. <laughs> um, <laughs> I made the um, So, I mean, what are some of the upsides of it, of, of, kind of working on licensed titles? Um, well, meeting Nolan North was pretty sweet. That does sound pretty Before sweet. Before he was famous. I liked, and, uh, and meeting all the, uh, the SpongeBob cast, that was pretty cool. SpongeBob said I wrote a good script. <laughs> Um, which is another part uh, uh, that's cool, is that we actually get to write dialogue for characters that we knew and loved, and that was really cool. Um, there's a pre-existing audience who, even if you make a rubbish game, they'll just buy your game, which is not a really good sounding point, but it's a good point. <laughs> also. It's good if you want to keep your job. If you want to keep your job. Yeah. So you don't have to sort of convince someone that this story might be interesting to them, they already know the mm. story, and so they just have to sort of work out, okay, it's a party game, it's fun, I'll buy it, or I prefer platform games, I won't buy it, so... I guess I you, don't, you don't have to do as much of that exposition stuff. It's kind of just like, we all know who Spongebob is. Mm. You love Spongebob, kids. Come it's play our Spongebob game. It is hard. Sometimes you do have to, like the directive is, if they haven't seen the film or they haven't seen the, the game, you do have to do a little bit, but not too much. Right. And it is a fine line to, to draw because people will just be bored if they got exposition that, that they already, already know. Downsides? There must be some. It's oh. not, it's, it's not oh. all um, treacle and shortcake. I made me cry. Well, the, the hardest... That's yeah. what we said in Scotland, by the way. What, what? Oh, I just made that up. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I think we've already covered the, the hard part of trying to design a game with a lot of interesting points, a lot of plot points around something that hasn't been written yet, mm. and you don't control that story. Like, uh, I was working with, I think you might be working on it now, a, a game, Paleta, which is um, sort of working with the writers to, to make a story that works for both game and, and cartoon at the same time, which is really cool. But when we've got an existing thing that that often you don't talk to the people, like the, the, the communication line, it just falls apart and you've got like two to four weeks of waiting to see if some plot point will go through 
and has to go all the way to the top and they'll come back with some changes that don't work in terms of the game. That's hard. Mm. And, uh, and also, yeah, whole scenes. Like, you know, True Lies, there's whole scenes just fell out. So if you've designed this scene around this awesome jet that happened and this really amazing scene that just ends up on the editing room floor, that's bad. <laughs> that takes a while. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm just going to lie down on this tell, couch. Tell me about True Lies. Tell me about... <laughs> um, like, Australia, like, obviously, you know, has, has spent a lot of time, like, kind of pushing this license thing. Like, what, what do you think... And, and it hasn't necessarily held, held a good stead. It hasn't mm. really carried on at the moment. Like, why do you think we spent such a long time going licenses? That's the way forward. I think licenses is the, or at least has been, the bread and butter um, projects of, of anywhere, really. Mm. So people need games made, and usually they don't want to spend as much on the license games. And so it sounds like I'm bagging up my own country here, but um, they would give it to Australia because we were cheap. Like, our dollar was really cheap, and so they could get the same work done or like you know more work done in Australia for a cheaper price and that helped and it was hard I think for the companies to turn down that money like they'd keep getting mm. offered okay you know we need to keep the teams doing something here's all this money to do this game and uh yeah and I think it might have been part of our downfall is that doing all that stuff we didn't get that good at our original IP and so we didn't sort of learn how to make a better game how to make a better game um constantly on our own IP and so we sort of fell down and started to rely a bit too heavily on the uh is it Stockholm Syndrome or something? I don't know. Maybe we <laughs> fell in love with these, these, these licences and stuff. And it is, it is convenient because you keep... Um, I think the co- companies just keep getting it thrust at them all the time. And here's, here's yet another game that you can make. And you think, well, we've got to make something. Mm. And so we do yet another licence. And then you get good at doing the licence. So you get another licence. Yeah, and I think it's also... Do you think it's also that proximity to, to the, the Hollywood machine where these things are getting made? Um, that, that means you can sort of upskill more easily. Like, we're so far away, and so you've got that chain of... You know, communication. It's like I want to do this level, and suddenly it takes four months for for any feedback. Mm. Whereas if you were next door, they just pop round and go, "Oh, we we just scrapped that." We just, yeah, that that makes it hard that you're not actually sort of in someone's face talking all the time. Mm. Um, the plus side of that is that we're working during their night time, and so changes can happen quickly, and you get feedback really quickly if if that part of the command chain works okay, the communication chain. Mm. Um, and what about? Um, I, I guess, like, what, what's the sort of the, the next step, like, uh, for Australian development? Like, if we're sort of moving on from those licences. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. And so we should. I mean, because, I mean, but they're not going away, so they must have gone somewhere else, but... Yeah, again, I think um, they went chasing the cheaper dollar because there, there just isn't as much budget for, especially some of the cartoon licences, which mm. might be starting to, to wane a little, and so they, uh, they just go for the cheapest place that they can make them. Do you think the audience is changing then? Like, people are sort of becoming less interested in... No, like I think people always love licensed stuff. It's, it's, it's not as sort of... It was special in the past where you could say, oh, my God, I just saw this film and now I get to be that character. But I think there is still some magic there of if it's handled well mm. to do it, and it's not usually handled that well. <laughs> but um, it, is, uh, it is still fun to just sort of say, I've, I've seen that world and I want to be part of that world, and if you do it nicely then I'd still play those games. Yeah, I mean, I think, think for me, the, the big sort of success story is Epic Mickey. You know, it's, it's mm. kinda, but it, I mean, that's, that's a license in the loosest sort of sense. Yeah, so that, that's not based on any story that they have to follow. They can make it all up themselves. But, but it is truly the first, like, AAA license game I think I've ever seen. And it's good. It is good. And the sequel is out soon. Mm. We're, we're only saying that because we interviewed War Inspector. recently. <laughs> um, I think we're going to throw the thing on and we'll have you back up oh, nice. um, for Q&A. Afterwards, right. I'll just cool. go sit over there. I'll just be over there. Cool. We 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 applaud you out then. Oh, thanks. That's I'll okay. Just, I'm just gonna. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
our final guest is, oh, is that crazy echoey? That's actually how I sound um, normally. <laughs> Hello, this is the voice of the Mr. Rons. <laughs> Does anyone get that? No one got yeah. that. Okay, give one person off. <laughs> it was totally worth it then if one person got it. <laughs> our final guest is um, Sarah Hagdusti, and, and Sarah is a professional s stirrer. Um, she works as a head of community engagement on Community Run, a new platform that lets anyone start and deliver their own campaigns. She grew up playing Prince of Persia and dreaming about being Lara Croft, and she's passionate about bringing the world of social change and video games together. And we have a very short clip of one of those games. It's dramatic music. cut it there before the tension gets too great. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so Sarah, like both, both of those games, Prince of Persia and Tomb Raider, are games that have sort of been endlessly reconfigured. So what was your entry point to, to both of those? Prince of Persia was the game I started playing when I was really, really young. And honestly, one of the reasons I it was because it was called Prince of Persia and I was from Iran and I was like, this is incredible. <laughs> this is totally like home. <laughs> <laughs> because you grew up in a castle that was full of spikes? Exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean we all did. It's pretty <laughs> much my childhood, exactly. But it was like, well, in a serious way, it was a great way to actually go to school and talk to people about where I came from in a way that... Like, you know, I could say, I'm from Persia, and they wouldn't say, oh, that crazy place with all the guns and the, like, scary men. And they'd be like, oh, like, the game. And it's like, yeah, the game. And, like, it's clearly not the most culturally sensitive of games, but it had enough there in terms of, like, just showing buildings with, like, the arch domes that you could say, yeah, there's stuff like that in Iran, and this is what it's like, and you could really talk about it, which is part of the reasons why I loved it. It's, it's, one of, it's one of those strange things about video games because the, there's that sort of mainstream myth that video games are antisocial, but the reality is that that's what you would do. You would, you would you know, take in your tapes or your discs and trade them or you'd talk to people um, about the games that you've been playing and about how you grew up in a giant place with spikes and, and things like that. Um, what, what about Tomb Raider? What was your sort of entry point to that? Tomb Raider, I never actually played the games. I loved the movies. Right. And I love... That's quite uncommon. It is, it is quite <laughs> uncommon. <laughs> I'm famous among my peer group for not having... I'm never allowed to play music at a party, and I'm never allowed to pick a movie at the party either, because I play... Because you, you, you put Tomb Raider on yeah. every time. <laughs> yeah, People, we, we know what happens here. <laughs> but I loved Tomb Raider because, again, it was like such a strong female role model, and I loved being like, oh, she can fly through the air, and she's like so cool, and I just want to be like her... So, yeah, it was, again, like that, like almost having like a lead character that isn't usually the lead character mm. that I could identify with 
whether that being someone from an ethnic background or a woman in a position of power that were like, you know, wasn't something, someone that people were just saving or people were feeling sorry for. Like, that's what I loved about those things. So, I mean, with Tomb Raider, were you sort of aware of the, because the film came out quite a long time after the first game. Were you aware of the sort of the, the history of, of Lara Croft as a character and as a video game heroine? Or was it just you, you saw the movie one day and went, holy crap. I knew it was a game. So I kind of knew like she was badass and like she was the lead character in the video games. And she games. raided tombs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But I like, yeah. <laughs> so I had kind of the context, but it was mostly the video game. Right. Um, and so it's, did you go back and play them? Or have you gone back and played them? No. Do you have any interest in it? <laughs> not anymore. I'm not a like gamer anymore, sadly. That's, that's not sad. Sadly. That, that. I, I feel a little bit bad saying <laughs> that in this crowd. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so, I mean, going back to Prince of Persia then, like obviously Prince of Persia has been through all of these sort of continual um, reinterpretations. Like, what, how do you feel about, about the movie? The movie <laughs> just made me so angry. Like, it was at the point where they, like, literally spray-painted Jack Gyllenhaal, like, brown to make him look Iranian. And I was like, that is not acceptable. Like, you either leave him white or, like, you get someone who's actually ethnic to play the role. And it was one of, like, my expectations for that movie weren't high. I was expecting, like, one, maybe two actors who were actually Iranian to be in that movie. I was expecting maybe some references or uses of, like, the original language. I was expecting maybe some symbols of Persepolis, which was, you know, the actual civilization of ancient Persia to be in there. And it wouldn't have mattered if they had gotten all of those references completely wrong, because even the fact that they were there and they were wrong still gives you something to talk about mm. that where you can explain about the culture and the heritage to people. It was the fact that they were so completely absent in any way that made me so angry about that movie. And it was like, ah. So, so I mean, that, that sort of, that, I mean, in, in terms of the, the adaptation, that, that they failed at that cultural adaptation. Like, it's just a superficial layer that they've just gone, hey, video games. Yeah. And let's spray paint. It's just, and like the thing that makes me so angry about it is because it would take so little to make such a big cultural impact in the life of, lives of a lot of people. And especially in the context that it was made, in like the post-September 11 context, in all of the stuff that was going on in Iran at that point with, there was these huge resistance movements and like, you know, they could have done small things. They could have made him wear a green armband and made him, like, you know, a symbol of, like, a hero. And that would have given so many people such a nice entry point and given so many people a chance to actually talk about those stereotypes and break them down. And it wouldn't have made a difference to the bottom line of the movie. It wouldn't have done any of those things. But the fact that they didn't make any of that impact and they weren't even thinking about the impact it would have so, I mean, what, what do you think, like, why do you think that's the case? Do you think it's just, again, that bottom line issue, or...? I think it's, like, it's partly the bottom line issue, but I think it's partly also the stuff you guys were talking about before, about video games kind of being seen as this low form of culture, where no one thinks about the potential of video games and how they can actually break down stereotypes, how they reinforce stereotypes, and how we can actually use them to create social change. Mm. And... I just came from this training in Adelaide where we were doing personal narrative training, which 
it, like it's pretty much just training people how to tell their stories because storytelling is one of the biggest vehicles for creating change. And that's essentially what video games are. They're just people telling stories over and over again in different ways. And there are so many instances where video games tell stories, especially around things like sexual harassment and sexual assault. And if, like, you know, you had a video games company, for example, come out and say, you know what, we are not going to do that anymore. We are never going to use sexual assault or sexual harassment in our video games to kind of give power to a male lead. And if they actively came out and said that, that would be one of the most powerful forms of advocacy for women's rights that we could have. And then the impact that would have is phenomenal because it would be in a medium where people aren't going to get scared by it. People will actually pay attention to it. And it would really have cut through. Mm. I mean, and do you think that's something that, that will happen? I mean, you, you're across the stuff that happened at E3, you know, these, these past few months, where it just seemed to be, here's a lot of violence, and here's a lot of sexual violence, and here's a lot of gore and blood, and you're just kind of looking at it going, maybe we've gone too far. I think it's, again, it's partly, we have a responsibility to call them out on it. And I think we have a responsibility to just acknowledge the power video games have. And not just in the gaming, but what we were talking about earlier is like, you don't pay video games in isolation. You talk about video mm. games with your friends. You say, I was playing this game, and this was my favorite level, and this is my favorite character. And before we can actually help them create change, we have to acknowledge that they are an important part of our culture, and they do help set tones and stereotypes and reinforce them. So I think it's like a duplicity thing. Yep. I don't actually think that the bottom line is what's stopping it from happening. I don't think anyone takes them seriously enough to be driving <laughs> that to happen yet. Do you think that's, I mean, coming back to the adaptation theme, do you think that's because we are still in video games trying to mimic like these other mediums? Like we're still so heavily influenced by cinema and we're still sort of, you know, beholden to cinema. We're still quite excited when someone makes a Prince of Persia movie. We're like, oh my God, someone's making a movie out of this game that I love, and then you watch it and you just go, oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe they shouldn't have done that. But then, then the next time it happens, we're like, oh my god, someone's making Prince of Persia 2. Maybe, that, maybe they'll have learned all the letters. <laughs> like, do you think it's just because we're beholden, still? I don't necessarily think it's because you're beholden. Because there's like great adaptations which kind of do do that in terms of social change. And the best example I can think of isn't a video games example. It's with the character of Tyrion in Game of Thrones, where you read the book and it like really does kind of help break down those perceptions. And you watch the movies and he's even more awesome. And he is pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and like it's those sorts of characters where they're not, you know, the stereotype. And there's someone who can, like, you know, in different contexts, would probably experience a lot of oppression. And they reframe that character and make them powerful. And it has such a huge impact on perceptions mm. in a way that doesn't make people feel guilty about not feeling that way before. And I think, I mean, coming back to something that Josh was saying, that, that in sort of inhabit inhabiting of a character and actually getting to, you know, experience those, those moments of struggle is potentially a really powerful way for video games to <laughs> communicate that stuff and to actually you know, test out those personalities. Yeah, exactly. Which sort of leads into the, the other part um, of the work that you're doing, um, which is, and I personally hesitate to use the term gamification, but that's what it is, which is about bringing the structures of video games, or games, social games and, and uh, physical games, to creating this sort of social change. 
So what, what are you sort of working on there? And how, how consciously are you adapting, not necessarily the fictional parts of it, but the kind of the underlying systemic parts of it? There's different ways. Like, part of the challenge is making social change fun. And I know that's not the core part of what video games are. <laughs> we had a conversation before that when we were like, the key part of video games isn't that they have to be fun. But social change can often be like so dry. And like because you're working on serious things, like you have to kind of take them seriously. But that doesn't mean that they can't be fun and you can't have like little bits of competition. So even there was friends of mine who were organizing Live Below the Line, which is around raising money to eradicate poverty. And what they started doing was pitting like universities against each other and being like, you know, Sydney University has raised X amount of money and Melbourne University has raised X amount of money and having two leaderboards. And the amount they fundraised off of that was phenomenal because again, that competition spirit totally drives that change. But you can also do it in like more creative ways, like with the Arab Spring or in cultures where like, you know, resistance is hard. You can take those lessons and turn them into video games and then have people play those video games so they can learn how to organize, they can learn how to make formulas to stop tear gas from impacting them. And then hopefully those video games would get banned, which means that even more people would play them <laughs> in those countries. So, so that, that's adapting like even the, the meta structure of video games, which is like people want what they cannot have. Exactly. That's, um... So you'd go too far, so you know they'd get banned and then you've got like market saturation. That's, that's genius. <laughs> you, should, you should patent that idea and then make millions of dollars by, by selling um, banned games. Um, and I mean, where do you sort of see that as uh, that sort of, that's, that process of, of continually learning and looking at what video games do in the video game culture? Like, do you see that as like the next frontier for what you're working on with social change? Yeah, definitely. In terms of, because it's, like, it's such a great venue for telling stories and it's also such a great venue for teaching people. And so much of social change is just those two things. It's helping people emphasize or have empathy for people who aren't necessarily the same as them or have the same experiences as them. And then teaching them the skills they need to realize that they can actually make a difference in their context. And if you can make a difference in a video game and then help them make that bridge of like, you know, you can do this in a video game and you can press X and this and these things change. You can only do that in real life as well by making this decision and using this and you can control your environment there. And I think like that's a whole world of potential that's so untapped and so exciting to explore. Cool. And, and does that come from watching Tomb Raider that you want? Pretty much. <laughs> it all comes from Tomb Raider and Prince of Persia. Um, we might throw the Technodrome for another song. Um, please join me in thanking Sarah. Or you can stay there because everyone's coming back after Pepper's on. Thank you. 
think I want to get a house band for my house. <laughs> That'd be awesome. They'll just play between cups of tea. Fireworks like rock at the out. end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we've got time for q and I, I obviously have a bunch of questions, um, but we can sort of probably throw to the audience where we, where we go through it. We have roving mics uh, as well. Uh, around. Yes, cool. Um, so, I mean, the first question, and we, we've, we've pretty much touched on this throughout, but I was saving it for the end. Why do movies made of games suck? So hard. Anyone can throw in. <laughs> For me, it's the uh, it's not, not the same experience at all. Like you know, when you're playing a game, you control everything, and it's your story that you want to play within boundaries. But you're still you're in control of stuff, and so that's the first point of uh, disconnect for me. Is that like you're watching someone else's um, interpretation of stuff, and it's almost always the wrong interpretation. <laughs> like it, it never really respects the game in the first place. Um, I don't know how you felt about Tomb Raider's uh, handling. Because you've, you've since played the games? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. A purist. Well, we'll, we'll never know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's like uh, with Prince of Persia, at least, you know, the first four minutes were sort of like the game and the last ten minutes were kind of... And, and the rest was just nothing like anything. So. And I think the director of Prince of Persia famously came out and said, video games, video games are stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, nice. you, why are let's, you doing Let's let that dude make a film. I've yeah. got something controversial, actually, to say. Because I actually thought... In the scheme, I've been doing watching a lot, a lot of video game adaptations in the last couple of weeks. Some of which I'd already seen. Some of which I'd, I'm ashamed to say, I avoid like the plague because of the connotation of video game adaptations. I think I'm Did you watch Blood Rain? Right. Is that what happened? I watched about 15 minutes of Blood Rain. I watched all of House of the Dead. Did you, you watch Bobby? Blood Rain three because it does get worse. Wow. Impressively. <laughs> I think I might skip that one. I'll put that down on my bucket list. It's like the, it's like the Citizen Kane of, of video games. But the thing, well, okay, the things that I think don't work with commonly with the, the game to cinema adaptations, one is you're right, the experience is completely different. One I mentioned before, and that is the, the lack of characterization. This is an assumption that you already know these characters, so why would they give you any back history or give a sense of motivation? The other is they pay lip service to the games they're adapting. Doom is the prime example of a film that goes. First of all, it complicates what is a very straightforward narrative. The game it works because it's it's that claustrophobic, that sense of dread, the use of darkness. I, I think Doom is a really accomplished game for what it does tonally and just as a first-person shooter. Then they complicate it with this sort of family melodrama and these these sort of conflict in between a crew, but we don't really care about any of the characters. And then. For a 10-minute sequence at the end of the film, we get a first-person shoot-em-up where the guy just goes around and he's suddenly we're seeing all these monsters we haven't seen in the rest of the film and he's blowing them away. And then he gets hit and then suddenly it goes back to a, a third-person camera that point of view. That sounds amazing. Well, it, my thought was, why didn't they do the whole film like that? You know, why not actually be creative? Take that step and, and let's go, we're going to make a first-person adaptation of, a, of, a, of, you know, of Doom, which could have been that contamination zombie slash kind of demon war, which is a pretty kind of common genre film, and it could have been done really well. So this idea of paying lip service is really frustrating. House of the Dead does the same thing. There's a 10-minute sequence where Uwe Bowles just told people to, to shoot zombies and these hordes just keep coming in, and it gets more and more kind of hysterical. But again, I don't care. Like, this is... A, do the whole film in that kind of, that kind of style. The one thing I liked about Prince of Persia, and maybe it only seems good because of the bad stuff that I've watched <laughs> alongside it, was that at least the action and the choreography was trying to emulate the style of a platform game. That the, the, the way in which he moves through the scenery, the way the action's choreographed, has that sensibility of, of the platform. And in between it, it's sort of woven into a fairly stock standard adventure epic. 
I completely agree with you, by the way, on the, the issues of representation. But I think, for me, that's, that's systemic. That's, that's Hollywood. I don't think, you know, and this is your scale of, of bad to worse, but in that scale of, of racial and cultural representation, I think Prince of Persia seemed less bad, if you can say that, to something like, I know it's not a video game adaptation, but 300, where you have the invading Persian hordes that are all like mutants, homosexuals. So it's like, let's throw in all the kind of cultural deviancy and, and attribute them all to this one, one kind of horde, but let's actually cast Persians. I mean, for me, that's almost worse than having a, a, a white actor, a white American with a British accent with fake tan play a, a Persian. So, something about that seemed far more offensive in terms of that thing, but I, you know, maybe that's a... That argument could open up into a whole, you know, <laughs> maybe a panel show for another time. <laughs> um, what, what about you, Sarah? Because I mean, you've you've seen Tomb Raider without having played the games. Like, like did that make you want to play the games, or were you perfectly happy to just go? I'll just have the the film. I just wanted the film. Like, I know that's controversial, but I like. I think the reason why video game adaptations don't work is kind of the same reason why like book adaptations don't work, and. It's like you can't compete with people's imagination. Like when you read a book, it's all about like how you think what those characters look like and then you're always disappointed when you see the movie because it's never what you think they're mm. meant to look like and it's the same with a video game. Like part of my objection to Prince of Persia, like even though I totally agree with you and 300 is so much worse, was <laughs> that like I actively used Prince of Persia as like a way to bond with people about it. And like watching the movie took so much of that away from me. I'm like, I can't even rant about how you got stuff wrong because you didn't even try to get <laughs> stuff in. And that was what was frustrating about it. Whereas, I don't know, the good thing about Tomb Raider, even though like trying to say Tomb Raider was good as a movie, <laughs> seems to be drawing a thin bow was that like you know she did kind of have like you did get a sense of like who this character was and she did have a background story and the plot kind of made sense so you could just watch the movie and go yep I get her she's great I don't need to be her in a video game because I was already her through the movie did you like did you miss the agency of Prince of Persia or were you too busy watching it going what, what is this I was too busy watching <laughs> it going oh my god the thing I think is, is interesting about the first Tomb Raider film, and you know, I, I went and saw it at the cinema, and you know, the audience was probably eighty to ninety percent males between the age of fifteen and twenty-five. There's, and you know, she's that, that has overlap with another demographic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, she's clearly sexualized. So there's one thing that I mean, it, that falls back on that kind of video game trope of the the busty heroine that you know she she has to have agency, but or she can have agency, but she has to be sexualized as well. But there's one very kind of clever maneuver or clever sequence in that where it begins with a shower head and the camera starts to pan down and there was an audible swell of kind of, oh, yeah, like we're going to see some boobs. This is great. <laughs> and it's actually Daniel Craig or it's the male character. And then there was, oh, because all these, all these adolescent males, possibly myself, were, were kind of expecting, you know, the gratuitous nude shot of Angelina Jolie bathing in the hot shower and then suddenly it subverted that expectation. I thought, you know, fair play. At least they've... They're trying to do something different with those, that knowledge of those gender expectations. Like, she doesn't end up with a guy at the end of the movie. Like, it was, and this, like, sounds crazy, but it was, like, one of the first movies I saw where there was a strong lead female, and in the end, she didn't have a romance. Like, she didn't have, like, that kind of traditional happy ending where she has the guy, and that means, like, she's successful. Like, she was successful because she was cool. And that was it. And that's why I love the movie and why, like, you know, yeah. (laughs) Did we have, did someone have their hand up? Hello. 
iPhone. Thanks. <laughs> in direct response to that question, but at the other end of the spectrum, why are so many movies that are turned into video games, so the video games from movies, why are they shit? <laughs> why are they just... Uh, you don't care. The visuals are bad, the, the gameplay is bad, everything is bad. It's just... Is that the fault of the licensee? Is that the fault of the people who come up with the ideas? Or is that just laziness on the behalf of the designing house because they're like, we've got all the story and everything made up for us. We don't really have to try with the rest of it. It's, whose fault is it that they're so utterly horrible? <laughs> well, it's your fault, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! <laughs> it's, um... It's, it's all things together. For a start, it's budget. So usually the movie or, you know, sort of licensed budgets are a lot smaller. So they, they farm them out to companies who are not as good. And so you're not going to get your sort of, you know, Blizzard making a movie or Valve trying to, having a go at stuff like that. You're going to get sort of companies that are not necessarily as good. Um, stuff that I talked about before, which is if you're basically on a story that's got certain sort of key beats that has to hit and you don't get that story until really late in the, in the process, you just have to make stuff up um, and often change it and um, pull things out, so that gets bad. And also, it's, it's, again, it's sort of taking the two mediums, so like a linear story, which is like a movie, um, everything happens in, in an order that sort of works for the characters and has this really sort of nice flow, and with games, you don't get that, so you have to really sort of work out how to make these scenes sort of have the same impact. Um, and then you get to the end of the game, and it has to, it's got the exact same sort of climax as the film that you've already seen, and it's the reason you bought the game, is because you've already seen the film, so it's not gonna have any sort of emotional impact. Um, I think games that make it work, like um, there was a Blade Runner game years ago and they did something awesome which was they made the main character wasn't the main character in the film. You were playing just a different dude who sort of went around doing stuff and you sort of, I think you brushed past the Harrison Ford character once or twice, but mainly you were sort of just doing this uh, another mission and it was really cool. Um, so you got to have the same world, you got to have that awesomeness of being part of that, that world that you just love seeing um, while not sort of being held to someone else's story and that was cool. But it's still your fault. Has <laughs> 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 uh, anyone else got any like games that work? The Chronicles of, of Riddick game is actually not too yeah, bad. It, uh, the, the graphics and the visual design of that film is, is really good. I mean, it's it's a shame because I think they've spent so much money on the graphics that it's a really short game. It's kind of like two hours and you're done, which is, you know, in, in many ways it's it's far better than the film, you know. <laughs> and Vin Diesel, you know, someone else wrote his dialogue clearly because, the, you know, he doesn't say anything maybe in the game. That's why I enjoyed it. But you know, either way, I think that was one of the few, the exceptions that maybe proves the rule. Do we have any other... Uh, do you think it's possible to have story elements in mobile games where people have to pick up and play, but you know they have to be interrupted for some other things, but still want to enjoy the story? Do you think that's possible or it's just never going to happen? Um, you have to design a game for whatever medium you're sort of putting it on, and mobiles are sort of interesting for that, that you can't really you don't really want to make a game that's sort of got this really long and elaborate epic story that takes place over two hours, three hours, or, you know, 15 hours of gameplay when you can only actually sort of see it on a tiny screen. And so I, I personally don't think it would work that well because it's like sort of dropping into a movie for three minutes and then dropping out again and coming back the next day for three minutes and trying to sort of keep, keep track of everything. Game Except game books. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, Lena, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it is hard because 
you are the the style of gameplay sort of dictates what kind of game you want to make for that, or the, the style of the way it's played. So um, it could it could happen, but it would be really tricky. Um, unless you had like you know tiny scenes, like if, if every scene was three minutes and really you know held held your attention and sort of really sort of set in your mind what was happening, that'd be kind of cool. We could make that game. Let's make that game. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what do you think about? Um like the, the where we're sort of at now is we're, we're we seem to be bringing back all of these old arcade games. You know, you go down to, you know, you go downstairs and suddenly everyone's crowded around Tempest or everyone's crowded mm. around Donkey Kong. Do you think we're sort of seeing like a, like an adaptation renaissance of those those types of games because mobile exists? I think it's always been the case because whenever any new console comes out, the first thing publishers want to do is bring back everything that worked in the past and try and make that money again. <laughs> and so you always get. Um, Towards the end, I worked at Chrome, and towards the end of Chrome, we were actually starting to re-pitch on all the games that had been pitched on 20, 30 years ago. And it was all the old sort of arcade games that everyone thought, oh, there's a new platform, we can do that. You know, what can you do with 3D, or what can you do with touchscreen, or something like that? And so it's like, you know, the DS came out, I think, and everything was just, let's make an existing game on the DS, and then the you know, 3DS comes out, and so oh, let's just drag everything else. That's, uh, that's fear. Fear and greed. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to the creative industries. <laughs> Pretty much. Did we have another? Um, I, I think in this room, at least, we can take it as read that video games are no longer for kids. And as you touched on earlier, video games no longer have to be fun. Um, they, you know, they should be enjoyable and interesting, but are often not for fun. But that idea doesn't seem to have made it to adaptations in either direction. That. Um, that we're not, you know, everything we've, all of the licensed video games we've seen, even the good ones, even your Arkham Asylums and, uh, you know, I mean, Ghostbusters was the first, you know, they're at best action movies and more often than not, you know, Epic Mini, Mickey and SpongeBob SquarePants, they're kids' stuff. You know, when we're not seeing um, the video game adaptation of the actor or Schindler's List and... <laughs> I think going, I'm going, quite happy about that. <laughs> and, Could you imagine Schindler's List? As, well, as a it's basically achievements, that we... right? Like, that's the game. You just go around gathering achievements. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People adding to your list. <laughs> you need 50 names. You have won. And, you know, even going the other way, you know, uh, video games... You know, you could take something like Heavy Rain that's got some pretty serious themes and very cinematic in its own right, but all we're adapting out of video games is to, you know, action movies pitched at teenagers. We're not, we're not adapting video game property into serious drama. Um, are we going to get to that point? Is, is that even on the horizon yet? Is there something fundamental that stops it? Is Schindler's List coming out soon? <laughs> well, well EA or Ubisoft. Much, no. I'd like no. to see a Lars von Trier film adapted for a video game. <laughs> I think Antichrist, the video game, would be really uh, great. With the move controllers? <laughs> Too far. It <laughs> bring you mean yeah. to the term cutscene. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> How many of you went like that? Okay, okay. Uh, I think it's funny. I was thinking about this going back and watching all these um, cinematic adaptations from Super Mario Brothers through to, through to now, and the tone of those films has actually changed. The Mario Brothers, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, those first sort of four or five years when, it was, when that was kind of you know, in vogue, very much like obviously kids' films. They had that almost Waterworld, fantastic sort of slapstick camp over-the-top quality, whereas I think now, I mean, they're trying to, but they're, they have a darker quality. The, evil, the Resident Evil films 
aren't obviously targeted at kids. So I think there's a general trend, but I think you're right. They're still they're still playing to that adolescent fantasy, the the action fantasy, as opposed to the the serious art form. At least with the with the adaptations. I think also it just works better for games. Like this is an entire new talk that could have, that could go on for many hours, but um, uh, action and violence and all that sort of stuff works well, and it's harder to get emotions across. Um, but people are actually actively trying now, and so I think we will get more. I think especially after this E3 has passed and everyone's just gone, oh, what have, what have we become? Um, people are going to start to think, what, what can we do to make our game not just this bloodfest for next year? And um, think of what else they can do to engage. Uh, again, sort of, it's, it's bottom line money thinking, so people want to put money behind something that will sell, and so we just have to make games that will start to sort of appeal to larger audiences, I guess. What about you, Sarah? Would like a game, not ne not necessarily Shindo's List, a game, but with a with a game that was perhaps a bit more, that wasn't necessarily kind of violence or, or kind of action oriented, would that draw you back in to to playing games, or is it? it definitely would. I think that, like, if I had a video game that I could engage with more, that wasn't that was somewhere between. Like, I feel like the video games I have on offer to me are like the Halo type video games that are just too violent for me. And then like on the completely other end of the spectrum, which are like the Smurfs and the Farmvilles on Facebook. And there's nothing in between where you can, it's strategic and it's fun, but it also has that really strong like story element where, you know, I'd love to play a game where I was like, you know, a dissident in the Arab Spring and my key role was to like pull together coalitions and topple a government. Like that would be fun. And, like, you know, it'd be a great way to kind of, like, you know, practice strategy and practice all that kind of other stuff. So, yeah, I'd love to have a video game that was intellectually stimulating, that had great narrative, but also had, like, some sort of relevance to my world and my life. Who do we have? Yep. So with the um, movie industry taking such an active role in creative direction and influence in some video game adaptations of TV shows or movies, to try and prevent any potential damage to the brand or the IP, why do you think the thing can't be said of the opposite, that video games companies don't seem to regard their IP could be potentially damaged by a, a terrible movie? Is it this thing of any publicity is good publicity? Let's just get our name out there. Well, actually, they have House of the Dead is a, is a probably good example where Sega licensed, um, or Sega gave up the license for the, for the film rights to Uwe Boll and because it, it just it was a complete bomb and it, backlash from all the fans and they realised they had a, you know, a disaster on their hands in terms of future releases for the, for the video game franchise that they kind of pulled all future film rights and, and basically sort of disappeared and went into damage control for a while you know, in, in order to kind of then... Why then I think they probably put all their money into House of the Dead Overkill. It was sort of their way of, you know, we've actually done something decent, please come back into the fold. But, so it, it does, but I think you're right, it, it seems to work more the other way. Yeah, because like if, if I see a bad film and I really enjoy the game, I'll still enjoy playing the game and I'll probably still enjoy the sequels of the game. So it doesn't really matter as much, I think, the other way. Because again, they're, they're so different, you know, a movie to, a, to the game that you're playing, the experience is so different that if one's handled well and the other's not, it doesn't really affect... Um, me as a player, anyway, it doesn't actually affect me too much. And it, it's starting to happen because Microsoft did it with Halo and Ubisoft had done it with Assassin's Creed, yeah. so it is. But like, 
my kind of instinct would be that it would go the other way. Like after watching Prince of Persia, all I wanted to do was go home and play the old Prince of Persia because it reminded me how great the video game was. Like there could actually be an argument that if you see something that's like a really terrible adaptation, you want to go back and play the original even more because you remember how great the original was. So you think they did it deliberately? To, to sell more, that's that would like give me more respect. <laughs> <laughs> that that is that's so crazy. It might just work. Um, we probably have time for one more question. Hi. <clears throat> so I have a I have a suggestion when it comes to films and video games, and that is that the the prime point of similarity between the two mediums is is actually spectacle, and that cinema had spectacle long before it had narrative, and video games had spectacle long before they had narratives, and so all night we've been talking about what films of video games do well and it's the action sequences which is actually like pretty unsurprising when you think about it because if we think about spectacle as being the point in common it's no wonder that they get the action sequences right and the the narrative terribly wrong because we're sort of you know we shouldn't perhaps be expecting that as a point of similarity um so i mean i i guess yeah it's more of a suggestion that um I suppose that when we're when we're talking about quality in something like you know we're going you know films video games like spectacle is like way down underneath there and so you know when we're talking about Michael Bay sorts of films and stuff like that it's been terrible like that's what we're saying we're saying we don't appreciate visual impressiveness and we think it's somehow stupid and that we should make Schindler's List instead which is not that at all I think I think there's a hierarchy within spectacle. I'm glad you mentioned Michael Bay because I didn't want to be the one to bring it up. Sorry, Paul. Um, uh, because I think spectacle is impressive when it's wedded to narrative. I think when we when we conceive of them as two separate things and we have spectacle and spectacle ceases and then narrative starts, almost a bit like some video games where we have the action sequence and then we have the cutscene and the cutscene's there really. I mean, it's like dialogue in a porn film. You have the sex, and then you have the setup, and then you have the sex again. I think it works better. I shouldn't have used the porn example now. <laughs> it, works, it works better when they're, when they're wedded together, when you actually have an investment in the spectacle that's, that's driven by the narrative or by the characters. But I, I think you're spot on. I think this, this idea in filmmaking, and I think in, in video games as well, has tended to kind of start to separate these, these two forms of storytelling to a point where... The, the relationship between them seem, seems lost, and then I think the audience loses interest in, in to, to it. Well, you'd hope they wouldn't would stop buying tickets to bloody Michael Bay, but you know, maybe I can dream. Oh no! <laughs> but often for me, the games are just not. They don't usually have good stories because it's such a, a low. If you're talking about the chain of everything, story for video games is not regarded highly. Even though most of the people making it regard it as pretty, you know, pretty important, it gets you know bumped to the bottom of the list and it's actually hard usually because of the, the process of making a game and how much like you know if you make one decision in the story how much stuff has to be made and animated and lip synced and recorded and this and this, um, you can't actually change it too much and so whereas a movie can get edited quite late in the process a game has to be sort of locked down and you, you're stuck with your mistakes all the way along and they're usually bad mistakes like you know outside of places like Bioware and stuff like that you just don't get people who, who want to actually sort of pay an actual writer to do a really good story who will, who will also work with the team the entire way through and change things and adapt things to how the gameplay works. So it's a, it's a really specific type of writing that just doesn't get handled well and doesn't get uh, the credit that it needs, I think. So, yeah, we rely on spectacle. Spectacle. I also think it's easier to suspend this belief when you're playing a video game. Like, you can play Super Mario and Luigi and you think it's perfectly normal and you don't question <laughs> the context. And you watch the movie and you're like... What the hell is going on? <laughs> there are two people. What? 
that. So, yeah. I think it's like, yeah. that's like also the great thing about video games is you do get to suspend disbelief far more than you would when you're watching a movie. On that bombshell. <laughs> on that note, I, I, I had no idea how we were going to work Super Mario in, so I'm really glad that someone else does. <laughs> so, so good work. Um, please join me in thanking our panellists, uh, Sarah, Craig and Josh. Um, and thanks to you for all coming out this evening. Uh, our next replay session is Someone Else's Skin, looking at what it means to be a character in a video game um, and how different games create different ways of seeing through someone else's eyes. Um, and that's on August 21st. We are going to throw the Technodrome for one final song. Um, thank you again.
You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.